Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. On today's episode... Dads aren't always going to talk about like feelings. They're not necessarily going to say, well, I feel ashamed and I'm concerned that I'm going to be jealous when we have a baby and the relationship shifts. Like I talk like that because I'm a shrink, but a lot of dudes just don't talk that way. So in a way you sort of have to listen for metaphors. Like if he says, well, Hey, you know, I'm kind of out in the cold or you're taking shots at me or I'm out on a limb or something. He's telling you he feels vulnerable and alone. Right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Williams. And as you know, the mission of this show is to dive deep into the realities of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. We talk about everything that no one tells you before you give birth. We're getting into it. Today's episode, we're covering one of the most frequently left out topics in the conversations that we have when we talk about things that surround giving birth and postpartum. And that topic is actually fathers and non-birthing parents. Usually we leave them out, but not today, because today I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Singley, who's a psychologist, and his life work and the focus of his practice is devoted to men's issues, and specifically the transition that men go through when they become fathers, and also the transition that couples go through together as they become parents. One of the most amazing surprises that I've had since beginning this podcast was to find out how many of you fathers-to-be and non-gestational parents are actually listening. My assumption was, oh, this is going to be for, you know, the women who are getting ready to give birth and preparing for that. But there are actually so many of you who really want to know how to best support your partner during the event of giving birth. And since when a baby is born, parents are born, I'm really, really excited to have had the opportunity to speak with a leading expert on the emotional and mental challenges that surround what a new parent goes through. So whether you're the one who's about to give birth or you're the one supporting your partner as they give birth, all parents will get so much out of what Dr. Singley has to say during our conversation today. Dr. Singley is a San Diego-based board-certified psychologist and he's the director of the Center for Men's Excellence. He won the American Psychological Association's 2017 Practitioner of the Year Award from the Division on Men and Masculinities, and he currently sits on the board for Postpartum Support International as well as the APA Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities. He's an author, he's a dad, he's a really engaging guy, and we met on Zoom recently, so here's our chat. Let's jump right in. It's good to see you. Thanks for doing this. Likewise. Yeah. Oh, let's ogle your books for a second. Here. Oh, yeah. Like- My husband has a lot in here, too. It's a mixture. Got it. Yeah. Plus, you have an intimidating mic. Look at your setup. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you're going to do something, do it right. Go at you know? it. Right. Go at it. <laughs> yeah. Normally, I work out of a studio that's in my garage, but with the pandemic and everything, having to do everything remotely, it's actually great, but I had to bring it in my house because the Wi-Fi is not good out there. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you know, flexibility. You just got to roll with it. And this is just the way the world is right now. That's funny. I did, I did an NPR interview a little while ago, and mm-hmm. I was asking like, so you're working from home, right? Like you're not like, what's your setup? And she's like, 
okay, so I have two kids. I'm under my table. <laughs> I have two sleeping bags on top of me with pillows all around me. And like, it was hilarious. She was like telling me about the setup. It sounded like hilarious. It's great. I know. I was listening to like, um, like a Wall Street Journal had a podcast with two female hosts in the beginning of the pandemic. They both had children screaming in the background. And, you know, at first, everyone's like, so sorry, so sorry about my kids. And after a while, it's like, look, this is the way it is now. And I kind of love that we're just be- becoming comfortable with the fact that people are parents and like they, you know, they have to work from home sometimes right now. So it's great. Can you tell me and my listeners a little bit about you and why psychology? Why did you want to become a psychologist? Let's go back. So I wanted to get into psychology. Initially, my focus was in medicine. I was focused on, uh, I wanted to be a surgeon hmm. and oh, we did all the pre-med stuff and undergrad and um, ultimately came to the realization that really what I wanted to be was a high level positive change agent, which sounds a little jargony, I realized, but you know, I also wanted to be able to make a decent living and, Mm -hmm. and enjoy what I do and feel good at what I do. And I took a few psych classes in undergrad, but I just took them because they were easy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't really think of it as the profession to go for. Um, but ultimately, after grad school, or rather undergrad, I took a couple of years off to go traveling. And it was at that point that I realized, yeah, I think really what I want to do is, is focus that that value of, of bringing positive change in, in psychology. And so I went back and took a bunch of post-bac classes and got involved in research. And, and the more that I did it, the more authentic it felt hmm. for me. And I came to men's issues actually at the very, very end of grad school when I was an intern and had a men's psychologist come. And I'd never heard anyone speak about the psychology of men or or masculinities. I took gender and it was all about, you know, psych of women and transgender and gender nonconforming and so forth. But literally no one had spoken about gender hmm. of men. And mm-hmm. so that got me into that. Um, it was the same psychologist who talked about the psychology of fatherhood and the the transition and and he became my mentor, and then I, I, I gained some attention because there aren't many dudes looking at the psychology of the dude to dad transition, and and so that's how I got connected with other organizations like Postpartum Support and local Postpartum Health Alliance and the Marseille, and yeah. here we are. Wow, wow! So you were already doing men's work before you personally became a father. And then, I was not. Oh, you were not. Okay. So tell me, tell me, because so you're a dad. You yeah. have, is it two boys? Is that right? Two boys. They're 16 and 13 now. I'm a little wow. bit out of the perinatal period. My kid <laughs> just got his driver's license yesterday. So stay off the road if you're in California. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so how has your own journey, you know, becoming a father and experiencing the birth of your children, how, how did that influence the work that you do now? Oh, it's total me search, right? That's the, you know, psychology Mm -hmm. research is me search. And so when I was an intern here at UC San Diego, my current mentor and very good friend, Dr. Jeff Jones, came and talked to us about men's issues. And at the same time, he talked about the psychology of early fatherhood. Mm. And I had never heard anyone talk about it before. And at the time, I had a three-week-old. And my head just kind of exploded when he started, he started talking about, yeah, I teach classes for expectant dads and new dads. And here's research about dads and postpartum depression. And I was just like, I actually had a lot of professional egg on my face. I'm like, how did I not 
how did like I'm going through this transition right now. Like when I was in grad school, I did a lot of work on um, white racial identity develop hmm. and development. Like, you know, being a white guy, I wanted to sort of look into privilege and, and, and power and my own racial identity. Like, you know, you ask your average white dude, Hey, what does your whiteness mean to you? And they'll, they'll start talking to you about culture of other groups. Mm-hmm. And I felt a little embarrassed that I hadn't done that. And so I, I actually went to him. I finished my internship and then did a postdoc fellowship and then kind of cold called Jeff and was like, okay, Hey man, like I got a little, free bandwidth here. What should I do? And he goes, well, you're a young father and you should run a group for young fathers. And I was like, once again, I can't believe that didn't occur to me. So wow. let's do this. And he, I got a grant and started up my own dad's class. And was that the beginnings of the center for men's excellence all the way back then? Or what did that? It evolve? was. Wow. It was. That was about that was 2007. Amazing. Yeah. It's just so fortunate for others that you decided to take this path. Well, well, I certainly have skin in the game. It's funny, like people will ask me because a lot of the work is about uh, perinatal mood and anxiety issues. Mm-hmm. And so I actually don't have lived experience. I didn't, I didn't experience any more anxiety than I usually do around, mm-hmm. around, you know, uh, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and neither did my wife. Mm-hmm. So it's not that lived experience that, that pulled me into this. Um, I actually had sort of a funny interaction where my wife, who got an MBA, at some point I was sort of overloading myself professionally and she sat me down and was like, okay, Danny, here's the deal. I refuse to let you work for anyone else for a year and a half. You have to give your practice and research a shot and you have to stop doing things that aren't about men and fathers. Now go do it. And it was by far the best career coaching I've ever gotten in my life. I followed that advice. Men's issues and fatherhood, early fatherhood are my North Star, and I never looked back, and I love it. Wow, what great support. That's really great support. So this podcast, uh, most of the listeners are Mm parents-to-be, and I'm curious, what specifically surprised you the most about witnessing the actual birth of your children? And what do you remember about that experience? Well, this is funny that I do this now professionally because I didn't then. Hmm. The thing that was most surprising about the birth itself was we had to get a C-section and it was an unplanned C-section. And these days, like, you know, working with expectant dads and couples, I have this whole spiel and worksheet about, you know, hey, birth planning, dads be involved in the planning. Here's a template you got to be able to talk about. That's plan A. Plan B is for each thing that you answered. What if we can't do that? Like, I got a whole rap about that. Well, I didn't have that rap back then. Mm-hmm. And um, my wife's cervix wouldn't ultimately open up mm-hmm. and we ended up going the way of a C-section and it felt rushed and we hadn't really talked about it until she was in active labor, which mm-hmm. is not when you want to be doing that. Right. Um, ultimately everything worked out, worked out perfectly fine, but that, that was certainly the part of that birth that, that was like, I had a moment with our first, cause the second kiddo, he was a planned C-section, but with mm-hmm. the first one where they just, you know, gave me the scrubs and the, and the, you know, the bunny suit thing. And I put her on a gurney and wheeled her off. Mm. And I just had this intense feeling of fear and loneliness and was like, okay, surgical team, there's really only one outcome here that's going to work for me. So let's get this done. And then the actual ROB was phenomenal. I'd had a lot of training. I had worked as an EMT before that. So I was Mm. looking over the surgical I was like watching like, what so he's got, like, like? His, his arm up to the elbow and my wife's abdomen. And I'm like, all right, careful there, you know? And, um, <laughs> wow. So yeah, that the whole C-section thing was certainly not, uh, not yeah. anticipated. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's birth for you. You don't know how it's going to go. You just got to be present, I guess, and try to be there for your partner. It's Mm -hmm. intense. And then do you remember like in the early postpartum period, you said you didn't really have, you know, mental health struggles personally, but any maybe advice you could give for dads to be listening about how to support their partner or how to, you know, prepare for that early postpartum period? Yeah. So first, a little bit of prevalence. So we postpartum depression gets the most media attention, right? Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. if you think about it, that's only what we're only talking about postpartum. So after the birth, and then we're only talking about depression. Mm. So when when talking with dads and, and, and expectants or new parents, I strongly encourage them to think perinatally including the pregnancy, certainly Mm -hmm. at the birth, and to go beyond just depression to anxiety. So dad's experience before the birth between, you know, two and two and 16% of expectant dads get an anxiety disorder, not they feel sort of anxious, they get generalized anxiety, OCD, post-traumatic stress, acute stress, specific phobia, like an anxiety disorder, Mm. right? And then like, I think it's four to 18% develop one in the postpartum. So anxiety and and depression figures are like postpartum depression for men tend to be 10%, about Mm -hmm. one in 10. So anxiety Mm -hmm. is actually more prevalent and it is certainly comorbid with depression. Wow. So you see a ton of anxiety. It's just a lot of times we can talk more about this. Guys will sometimes manifest mood and anxiety issues a little bit differently than how we're looking for it. So for me, my experience, I think I've always kind of had like some low level generalized anxiety. And as I say, it didn't really spike so much around the birth. But one thing that did happen for me, um, and this, this might be a little bit aversive for your listeners, so I guess trigger warning. But after the birth, I found myself having at night um, this recurring nightmare where I would be somewhere high holding my baby and he would push out of my arms and I'm up high looking at him falling Mm-hmm. And his little face was laughing as if he's doing his fun thing. And like, even now I'm telling you this, like I feel it in my chest. It was awful. It was so upsetting to me and it kept happening and happening and happening. So at this point, remember, I'm like a fifth year grad student in, in psychology, right? Yeah. And it kept happening. And then it started bleeding over into the day. And once again, I talked to my wife about it and she was like, Danny, that's just you feeling really protective of this new little super vulnerable being that you have and you love him. And I was like, good point. And it stopped. Oh, wow. Wow. That was in terms of experiencing more, more anxiety. That was really, that was it for me. Now, of course, I've worked with all kinds of other folks that experience it in very different ways. Right. That was me. Wow. Wow. So what can people maybe look out for and be prepared for as far as like symptoms or warning signs that maybe it's time to get help? So taking taking the depression first, I, I made reference earlier, there's this um, presentation that we call male masked depression or also major depressive disorder male type. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is that some men a lot of guys will present with a form of depression, including perinatally, that looks a little bit different than the sort of weepy, withdrawn, can't get out of bed presentation that we oftentimes think about. And so the, the, the most common 
types of symptoms that will play out for these, the, these guys. And frankly, some women, like people of all genders can present in this way. It's just, you see it more commonly. I see it more commonly in men are mm. first real irritability, like mm. irritability, frustration, sort of winding into angry outbursts or rage. Mm. The second is a tendency to somaticize, to take emotional concern or distress and turn it into a physical expression. So clenching your shoulders, clenching your teeth, headaches, muscle tension, gastrointestinal distress. Mm. So the, the somaticizing piece. The third is an increase in substance use. As we talk about substance, like they drink more, they may use more drugs, even if they're legal or prescription, but really more broadly, it's an increase in in what are called dopaminergic behaviors. So it may be gambling, risky sex, playing video games, whatever gets that sort of squirt of dopamine, cerebral joy juice. Like a lot of times a a male depression presentation will include some of that. Uh, And the fourth is isolation. And that's really more about being withdrawn and disconnected because you can be around people at work, at home. And it's not that you're isolated, that you're not around people. It's that you're not engaging. Mm. You're not, you're not connected with them. And so it's those, those four types of symptom clusters are definitely what to look for with men in, in depression and in and around certainly the perinatal period and the anxiety stuff can look fairly similar big difference being that for people that have anxiety mm-hmm. there's an old saying in in mental health depression doesn't feel like symptoms it feels like you mm. right mm-hmm. well if for people that have significant anxiety they recognize that they feel anxious but the thought system that contributes to that anxiety makes sense to them mm. so fears about contamination fears about safety like these sorts of things the most common way that that guys, that dads will manage this and moms do the same thing is they just have a rigid, they, they have a lack of insight into this is a little bit extreme or, or on point or not that likely. And they start taking pretty extreme precautions to prevent this thing from happening. That can also mean I'm trying to control somebody else's behavior to make my anxiety go down. And, you know, parents mm. do this to each other all the time. Right. Yes, <laughs> that's so true. Wow. Oh, that's so great. It's such helpful, concrete ways to like analyze how you're feeling, what your behaviors are. So thanks for sharing that. I'm wondering because, you know, a lot of moms to be listened to this. And I think that moms to be generally, since they have a lot to think about as they're preparing to give birth. And I know for me personally, like my husband and how he was feeling was not really something that I was extremely concerned about or thought too much about. Sometimes it feels like the big changes are happening to us and our body. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that I had maybe considered him a little bit more in my own journey. But I'm wondering, what do you wish that more moms to be or birthing parents could understand about the stuff that dads to be or non-birthing parents are going through? And with that in mind, how can couples make a stronger unit as they enter parenthood? So I love this question and just a little bit of, of background on this. So I'm a really educated, extroverted white male. And so in a space that is highly maternal and in, in many ways, a highly feminist and post-feminist group that looks at these kinds of issues, certainly academically and professionally, 
it's a precarious position sometimes for me being who I am in terms of my dimensions of intersectionality to be saying, hey, y'all, let's focus on the dad's needs. Because generally speaking, as a society, we are not socialized to think of men generally Mm. without any other caveats. We're not really socialized to think of men as being disempowered, Mm. as being marginalized. And you can look at, you know, certainly men of color, low SES, you know, physical a bit like there are all different ways that, that, that we do. However, we're not used to think if you look at the perinatal period broadly, that one up position that, that men enjoy relative to women and people of other genders Mm -hmm. with respect to the parenting dimension gets flipped. Mm. And all of a sudden men during the pregnancy are in the back seat. Mm-hmm. They're not driving and they're not the ones that are being consulted. They're not the ones that are, that people are saying, I have a lot of confidence in you to do this. And certainly for some men, this may be the first time they've ever had that experience combined with a low sense of their confidence and competence to do it. So that's mm-hmm. a very important sort of way that we're socialized and how that can play out mm-hmm. in, in the perinatal period. So that was a little bit of a preamble. So I actually just released a book. Mm. It's called Parental Mental Health, Factoring in Fathers. Um, I wrote it with my good friend, Jane Honigman. She's actually the, uh, the founder of Postpartum Support International. And the basic point of the book is we need to shift to a frame that's more about parental mental health, not just maternal. There are some, you know, absolutely just maternal mental health issues, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. But generally as a field, moving to be more inclusive of fathers, of men, of non-gestational partners. Mm-hmm. So practically for, for your listeners, for the moms to be that are asking, okay, what do I do? First is just ask him like, this is not rocket science, but based <laughs> on what you just said, I, here's what I encourage moms. Look at your husbands at some point and say, Hey babe, how are you doing? Pregnant pause. Sorry. I had to make that joke and <laughs> say, okay, babe, how are you really doing? Mm. Like that pause and that follow up is something that couples really tend not to do to include them. Another one is, and it's, it's different with COVID, like support people, like a lot of times the partners cannot go to well baby visits or to visits during the pregnancy, yeah. but, and certainly hospital visits are off, right? That's one of the things that really gets dad's heads in the game. And that's, yeah. that's not out there. So I'm working with a lot of couples right now where the dad feels kind of disconnected. Certainly if it's a second baby, And one of the ways to do that is for the two of them to, I think, huddle and talk about like, hey, how do we do this? How do we do this together? Mm. And for the dads, dads aren't always going to talk about like feelings. They're not necessarily going to say, well, I feel ashamed and I'm concerned that I'm going to be jealous when we have a baby and the relationship shifts. Like I talk like that because I'm a shrink, but a lot of dudes just don't talk that way. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you sort of have to listen for metaphors, Like if he says, well, hey, you know, I'm kind of out in the cold or you're taking shots at me or I'm out on a limb or something. He's telling you he feels vulnerable and alone. Hmm. Like you don't have to force it out of him that he's saying that, but it is helpful to listen for it. And as much as possible, involve him in the medical processes. And if there's a nurse or a tech or somebody that's blowing him off and he's just kind of shutting down about it, this sounds weird, but mom's advocate for your partner. Say, hey, he just asked you a question. Like I've, I've heard this over and over and over again. The front desk staff doesn't look at the dad. The nurse or the tech or the, or the OB doesn't really take seriously questions from him. Mm-hmm. He's in the hospital and feels like 
he's completely vestigial to the process. Like these are super common barriers and issues that dads experience. And moms, you're doing your own thing. So I'm not saying I'll make it all about the dad, but think parentally, think as a, as a unit. Right, right. It's just going to help later if you start that habit early. I mean, one of the pieces of advice that a friend gave me before I gave birth, which I thought about so much in the early days, especially, was you have to allow space for your partner to parent in their own way. And I think (laughs) what she was saying was, you know, like, it could be something as simple as like, the outfit that your husband picks out, you know, don't micromanage his choices. And for (laughs) because you're just creating more work for yourself in the long run. And I thought about this, especially like for me to soothe my own child when he was crying, it was so much easier for me to do it, I could do it in 30 seconds. And my husband often felt frustrated because it might take him 30 minutes to get Mm -hmm. the same result. And there were nights where, you know, I, I could tell he was frustrated, and I wanted to just jump in. But and the most difficult thing was just to step back and be like, no, like give him space to figure out his way to soothe. Otherwise, I'm going to end up doing all of it. And he's going to feel like he has to leave the room every time. Right. But let me ask you this. Yeah. When you did that, when your instinct was to jump in and then you stopped yourself and said, you know what, I'm going to give him the space to do this. How did that feel emotionally for you? How, like how, how was that? Oh, it was very hard. You know, <laughs> it was, it was hard because I think that the instinct that you have as a new mom with, you know, there's like milk let down and there's all these, like when your baby cries, there is a stress reflex. It feels like you have to go and jump in. And I wasn't always successful. Sometimes I was like, sure. let, let me just feed him <laughs> real quick. Let me just breastfeed him. And then we'll be done with this and we can get some sleep. No, it wasn't easy and it didn't come naturally, but I also saw that, you know, he was upset about not being able to sort of have equal calming skills. And so it was always a discussion. It was like, well, if you want me to come in, just come get me. Um, But to answer your question, yeah, it didn't feel good. (laughs) It certainly was hard and I, I didn't always do it, but I had that in my mind of something that was important to me to allow him equal rights as a parent to bond with his child and to soothe his child and to try because I also didn't want my whole life to be for the first year that I'm the only one that takes care of the baby and all of that burden is on my shoulder. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it was extremely hard, (laughs) but it did work in the end. You know, he was able to find his own way and it was different than my way, but it worked for him. But here's why I ask, because what you just said was basically in a situation where you're, you're being effortful about giving him space to do things his way. I mean, anybody holding a crying baby also feels distressed. Like we're evolved to feel that way. You don't, there's an issue, right? So the picture you just painted in which most parents experience in this circumstance is both parents are upset and so is their infant, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you get tired, you get worn down. And so, like you said, all like always isn't even a thing in psychology. You know, it's not like, well, I always do this. Like, yeah, that's never on a treatment plan of mine. (laughs) Um, But in order to pull off what you and your husband did, you both have to have a reservoir of distress tolerance to say, okay, I'm going to sit with the stress that comes up in me for him to be soothing the baby in the 30 minutes that that's going to take by the same token, he has to say, okay, this is upsetting to me. I feel kind of a hit to my confidence that I can't sue this quickly as you can. And I'm still going to do this as well. 
Mm. Well, think about compound that with if one or both of you has postpartum depression Mm. and everything feels like, I mean, getting out of bed feels like a struggle. You know, everyone else is judging you and hating you. You don't feel connected to that baby. It's dark and heavy and you don't see the way through the likelihood that you're going to take on the added stress of I'm going to push through and I'm going to soothe this baby. I'm not just going to, you know, give him back. I'm just trying to paint you a picture here of how mood and anxiety issues can sort of take those traditional, you know, biological and and socialized gender roles and sort of drive a wedge in them. Mm. And one of the ways that that can play out is, so the term is gatekeeping. Okay. Right. In the, in the psychological literature, it's usually called maternal gatekeeping. And the reality is parents of different genders do it. It's more predominant, but it describes a phenomenon that most of us in this area are familiar with, which is going back to what I said before about we're socialized to think that mothers are inherently biologically better at caring for infants than, than other genders. And this isn't true. There's actually no research to support the research basically says gender doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of other factors that, that do impact it. Uh, of course, there are biological issues like nursing that are very different. <laughs> right. So it's, I'm not saying everything's equal and the same, but of on the gender front in terms of caring. Well, when you take that socialized idea of dads don't know what they're doing, moms do. And I'm, I'm using fairly like heteronormative language here just because that's basically reflective of the, of the literature, typical right, yeah. literature that I'm citing. The dad gets lots of messages from television, from infant from parenting education from movies from social media like it's called the bumbling dad stereotype he doesn't know what to do with the baby he puts the you know the baby screaming he puts a diaper on the head hands it back to his all-knowing partner and this is just one of the ways that dads will get this message right mm-hmm. well because of the broader socialization that dad doesn't know what he's doing they're less likely to be as assertive and involved as you're talking about your husband was conversely if his partner also thinks, I know what's up. If he wants to do it differently, then it's wrong. And if she or he, frankly, has an anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. then different can equal bad and dangerous. Ooh. And so the gatekeeping piece comes in where oftentimes it's the mother who's saying, hey, what you want to do is different than what I want to do, and I won't allow that. And so this is some of that avoidance by proxy that I was talking about earlier. And the short version of this spiral is – she controls access to the baby. He doesn't get access to the baby. He may want more. She doesn't allow it. He gets less experience. He gets less confidence, feels resentful of her. The relationship starts to unwind, less and less involvement, less and less closeness, and and so on. And it's not a complicated thing to manage clinically. It's fairly straightforward to do that kind of work, but that's a really, really common dance that new couples will get into. Wow. Yeah, you just described a lot of people's relationships that I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what what's to be done? You know, I mean, how do we help? You know, how do we make it better? That's that's what your whole mission in life is. But you know, yeah, right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I can answer this at, at various levels, like you know, policy and advocacy. But I don't think your listeners want to hear that at mm. this point. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a practical point, most of the most of the research in this area, and certainly my experience and those of my colleagues, is it's the relationship, stupid. Mm-hmm. So, 
if you allow your early parenting journey to become one where you're triangulated and your entire identity becomes that of mother or your entire identity becomes that of father and you stop being lovers, you stop being a couple, you got to remember that it's the relationship. It's the quality of the relationship and the relationship satisfaction that really is the crucible within which the baby develops and it has mm. clear implications for the baby's mental health and to an extent, physical health mm. development down the line. And so my advice is during the pregnancy, don't wait for after during the pregnancy, try to, I mean, if, if you've got a history of depression, if you've got a history of anxiety, substance issues, like whatever it is, be proactive about it. Like that doesn't necessarily mean if you're going to have a relapse or it's going to get worse, but have the resources for it just fundamentally. Then as it relates to the relationship, I always encourage couples to learn some basic assertive communication skills and to do some concrete, what I call um, relationship hygiene hmm. work and hmm. assertive community. I mean, so I do cognitive behavioral and, and mindful work. So I'm all about like handouts and tools and techniques and so on. Yeah. But the assertive communication thing basically boils down to here's how you fight fair. Mm. And the short version of this is when we're disagreeing about something, instead of me going for the jugular and trying to shut you down or me shutting down and pulling back or me being the brilliant one that has the solution for everything, when I realize, oh, wait, we're not on the same page about that, even though I think I'm right and you're wrong, what I do is I shut up mm. and I say, huh, okay, that's not exactly where I was coming from, but obviously we're not agreeing about this and this seems really important to you. Let me get this from your side first. Not let me tell you what I think your side is, because that's usually the next issue that people do when they hear this. It's right. let me open it up and create space and invite you into it. And you just tell me what this means. Don't get, don't minimize, don't get defensive. I got to have my big boy pants on. I got to hear some stuff I may not agree with. But as a concrete technique to sort of make space, make emotional space in the relationship and the nest, that assertive communication, like learning how to have productive conflict, critical. Hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break to go back to a moment in the history of human birth, also known as, and you thought you had it bad now. <laughs> Here's a fun historical fact. Did you know that it's only very, very recently that fathers were even allowed to witness the birth of their children? I mean, up until the end of the 19th century, births were attended by experienced midwives and typically took place at home, but birth was considered a female event. Fathers did not have a role to play, and they were generally kept out of the experience. Dads-to-be continued to be kept out of the room as giving birth began to become medicalized, and physicians started overtaking the role of delivering babies in the early 20th century. In fact, fathers participating at all in the birth of their children is directly connected to the women's movement and the natural childbirth movement in the 1960s. Women weren't happy about being told who was and who wasn't allowed in the room, and slowly, things began to change. It wasn't even until the 1970s that men were even allowed to stay for the birth of their children in hospitals. The good news is, today, most fathers are present for the birth of their children, and inviting dads to be a part of the birth experience has no doubt had an overwhelmingly positive effect on our culture. It's hard to imagine that there was a time so recently that men everywhere were not allowed to experience that. And now back to the show. And there's another tool that I, I ripped it off from John and Julie Gottman. You know, they did the, you know, bringing, bringing baby home. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and they have a tool that I sort of tweaked. It's called the State of the Union meeting. And it's a weekly meeting where the couple gets together. And the way I do it, it's sort of circumscribed. The couple sits down and tells each other three things in order. And this meeting takes five minutes. Okay. If it takes 10 minutes, it's a super long State of the Union meeting. But in that meeting, the couple tells each other three things. One, what's something I think is going well in our relationship? Two, what's something I'm having some difficulty with in our relationship? And three, what's something you, my partner, what's something you did that helped me to feel loved, cared for, connected? So this is just sandwich feedback applied to the relationship. Again, not rocket science, but we don't do this. I love that. I mean, if every couple did that every week, not just, you know, when you become parents. Agreed. But yeah, especially when you're going through these new changes. Oh man, I love it. I love that. If you think about it, doing that on a weekly basis means you are communicating proactively Mm -hmm. about the relationship in a balanced way. Mm. And frankly, nobody does that. Couples don't do that unless you have somebody like me that's just kind of like behind you, nudging you saying, oh, did you do your homework? Did you do the State of the Union meeting? And the first one is usually a nightmare. Like, oh my God, it was sideways. Like we threw stuff at each other. And that's why I always say it's not the first one. Mm. It's the fourth one. I want to know what the fourth one was like and what it starts to happen between those meetings when you have information or you know better what's going on with the other person. How does your behavior change then? So assertive communication and state of the union meeting. I love it. Oh, that's something I'm going to implement. My husband is luckily, he's the excellent communicator in the household. And I think that I've learned from him those skills. I mean, I'm still learning, but uh, I, I feel very lucky because that's certainly the first relationship I've been in where, you know, they ask questions like, and they communicate constantly. And, um, and <laughs> I, I didn't realize how rare that was until I met him, but you know, then I married him. So it works. Well, th- but think about what we're socialized to do. The guys are socialized to be right and to talk first and to be louder and yeah. certainly other people do, but that does not lend itself to productive conflict. It takes yeah. work. Maybe your husband's just an evolved dude, you know? Yeah, I think so. But um, yeah, he's a little unicorn. I love him. Uh, On that note, talking about couples. So, okay. Almost every single parent that I've spoken to since starting this podcast has told me that sex was uh, a major challenge after baby and sometimes Mm -hmm. even during pregnancy for Mm -hmm. lots of different reasons, right? There's obviously the healing that the mother's going through for some um, people that takes longer. There's the sleep deprivation, there's the pressures of, you know, maybe the non-birthing parent going back to work, all the things. But Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how can couples be prepared for the ways that having a baby will change their sex lives? And how can they set themselves up to still have a thriving intimate relationship during the ups and downs of new parenthood? I think what we just talked about covers some of that with the communication. Mm -hmm. I think that that would be really, really important just to make you like the partner that you're you're living with and be on the same page with them because you can't have good intimacy without that. But in addition to that, is there anything that you would recommend or encourage people to do to help their intimate life? Just to underscore, you're, you're exposing me for the one trick pony that I am. But yes, communication, mm-hmm. like think about it. Think about, you know, I ask your listeners, do you talk openly about sex with your partner? Do you talk about, here's what turns me on or here's what you know, is concerning to me, or here's what I'm hoping for. Oftentimes we talk to other people about our sex lives, but not 
really directly to the person that we're having it with or that we'd like to be mm. having it with or differently. And so, yeah, that's that the communication piece is, is central and a lot of research points to the, the this relationship in which emotional intimacy and physical intimacy tend to go together. Mm. One can drive the other. You can have higher levels of emotional intimacy, and then that brings the physical intimacy along. By the same token, physical intimacy can then bring emotional intimacy along with it. But generally speaking, they tend they tend to go together. So it's really important to – so this is going to sound sort of like sexist, and it is an overgeneralization. But I have seen lots of experience points to – I've seen a scenario in which the couple has a rupture. That there's, some, there's some issue. And – the husband's way, the guy's way of trying to come back and reconnect is physically. Mm. It can be sexually, but when I'm talking about physical intimacy, I'm talking about the whole, I'm talking, you know, up to penetrative sex, but I'm also talking about, you know, hand-holding, fooling around, butt-smacking, like, what you know, whatever it is. Right, like, right. physical intimacy brought, like, I, a lot of times I'll ask couples, like, what'd you do when you were dating? Okay, mm. now give me a really good reason why you're not still doing that. Well, I have a baby. I'm tired. I have a job. Yeah, but that means you 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 can't like you know what like set up a date lunch during COVID or whatever it is. Like I'll really sort of put it to them uh-huh. in this way because it isn't the case that this has to fall off. It'll change. Well, certainly around the birth, due to the, some of the factors that you put out there, logistically there are different things to do. You're super tired. Uh, hormonal changes, which dads experience too, to a lesser effect mm-hmm. than do moms. All sorts of factors can impact it. So, so long as they're on the same page and they're able to just sort of talk and say, like, "Hey, here are some hopes or needs that I have." At least they're not feeling shut down and neglected. One of the pieces of advice that I give to couples about physical intimacy is don't say no. Mm. Say if, you know, if my partner's trying to, you know, put some moves on me and I'm not, I'm not in the same space. If I just say, no, I'm I'm not into it. Well, of course that's going to feel like a rejection. That, that, That will feel upsetting. Like I just made a bid for intimacy and closeness to you and you just said, no. Instead of saying no, what I strongly encourage, you know, in the context of a healthy, non-abusive relationship to say, okay, that's not exactly authentic for me. So not that. How about we do this other thing instead? Mm -hmm. So instead of no, it's not that, but maybe this, or how about that? Not now, but maybe, you know, or or later on. Right. That's critically important when it comes to the physical intimacy thing. That's really good advice. I think that one of the challenges that new moms have sometimes, um, especially if you have like a vaginal birth that's a little bit traumatic, is Uh sometimes the things that felt good before that you say, like, this does it for me, that gets confused. You say, Uh hmm, that doesn't, I don't know what feels good for me anymore. And that can feel like isolating and it can feel, people don't talk about it. That's why I'm talking about it. Uh, Because I've had a lot of new moms tell me they have felt that way. And I think for, you know, maybe new dads want to still make their partner feel that they see them as sexually attractive. You know, there's a lot of changes that happen. Uh And so, yeah, like, I think that's communication so, so, so important because if you can recognize as, you know, a new mom that maybe it's going to be different for you and it's going to ha- take a little bit more time to figure out what feels good again, but communicating that to your partner is going to be so helpful to help them understand. It really does sound so simple. It's just hard getting to the simple, isn't it? Talking. Well, 
it, along those lines, just in the way of an example, your mm-hmm. average dad doesn't necessarily connect with and certainly doesn't anticipate that that after a day of what she's been doing, that she will feel touched out. Right. She's got sore and cracked nipples. She's trying to like hold this squirmy thing. There are other people. And then, you know, if sort of he comes and, and, and makes sort of a start, start trying to get something going in a way that's really more about him and not as sensitive, having, you know, contextual interpersonal awareness about what's, what might make her more receptive right. or him by the same token. Yeah. So, that that sort of touched out thing is another really important dynamic for dads to understand and certainly for the partners to be able to articulate to him to be like, look, this is about me. I need to kind of recharge on this and then maybe. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Okay. So if you could go back in time to your pre-dad self and tell Dan back before <clears throat> you became a dad something, a piece of advice, what do you think you might say to him? Great question. This is a great question. Uh, so for me, like, I'm not a yeller. I don't have people in my life that yell at me. I don't yell at other people. I'm not generally an angry person. I have sort of an undercurrent of anxiety that plays out in being hugely productive and achieving. Mm. And I'm not the most patient person. Mm. And it wasn't until I had kids that that, that sort of anxiety slash intensity would start to play out in ways that caused me shame. Like mm. the way that I just said that to my eight-year-old, if I saw somebody else saying that, I would be like, dude, like back it up. Right. Like, so, mm. so I think, I think the, the advice that I would give to myself would be really work on how I appear when I'm feeling anxious or stressed. So I would have, cause you know, I've, I've done my own therapy throughout the years and worked on that. And, you know, there's no such thing as a parent without stress or shame and regret. And so that's just one part of mine. Now, mind you, hmm. doing the work that I do, like both of my kids and particularly my older kids, they love that I do the men's issue stuff. And then I'm a fatherhood psychologist, basically. And at the same time, like when the 16 year old, like just hit that edgy tween hmm. phase, I would get this number. Like I would, I would do something like, would you just do the dishes, you know, or something mm-hmm. along those lines. And you'd get the exasperated walk away and go real fatherhood expert <laughs> be like boy you did not just say that but you know that's that's, that's just just planting a seed for those expectant parents just wait to that that was my parent of the year plaque that year so. yeah well i have a son and you know raising a young man and he's a, also a white male Uh, raising a young white male in these modern times. I think a lot about, you know, how can I prepare him throughout his childhood to have healthy mental habits, emotional self-confidence? Is there anything specifically that you would advise people who are raising young boys to make them strong, healthy, emotionally, mentally prepared for the world? You know, is there anything that we can do for our young men? I mean, there are so many. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, um, this is a quick plug for a phenomenal documentary about how we socialize boys. It's called The Mask You Live In. Oh, and great. It, interestingly, the entire production cast is female. And it is a brilliant documentary about how we socialize young boys and adolescents in ways that shut them down 
and shut them down in terms of, of being good in relationships and with closeness and intimacy and to turn a blind eye towards mental health difficulty and makes them communicate less. Mm. So those are the areas in which certainly I would encourage parents to rethink maybe some of their implicit biases and assumptions about, you know, what's a man and tracking that into. So what should I be teaching my boy? But in that film, people respond differently to it. I, I have patients watch it all the time. My kids have had to watch it twice. That's the problem with having a men's issues, psychologist, dad. Um, but it, it really gets at what are some of those biases and how do we as a society sort of unconsciously, in some cases, intentionally, be it parents, be it coaches, be it teachers, be it media and film, give little boys messages about what weakness is and what they should be ashamed. Like when you look at traditional masculinity, the number one tenet in traditional masculinity is anti-femininity, which doesn't mean that you hate women. It means that whatever it is to be feminine in your culture, if you want to be a guy guy, don't be that. Hmm. And Hmm. there are other aspects, you know, like be the lone wolf and be successful in a shot collar and nothing bugs you and all that. But I, you know, there are aspects of traditional masculinity like that that are perfectly functional, but they're Hmm. like any other kind of strength. If you only do that, if you take that too far, you will end up with it backfiring you. So for parents to think about that is what I would encourage them to do. Yeah, that's, um, I'm going to put a link to that documentary in the show notes and I'll make sure and I I link your book and your, um, your website and everything as well. But, um, there's something I wanted to bring up since we are recording this interview during National Suicide Prevention Week. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to talk about something that's impacted me personally is a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine who happened to be a young father um, took his own life. And oh, it's something that I have a really hard time wrapping my mind around. I know everyone that knew him feels like we wish we had, we had known he was struggling. It's so hard right now. We're all so isolated during COVID and you don't get to see people in the way that you used to. And we all wish we had done more to help, but it's hard to know what people are going through sometimes. So how can we all help each other during these really difficult times? And if anyone who's listening, who might be experiencing feelings of hopelessness or having thoughts of self-harm, As a doctor and someone who has helped a lot of people sort of with their own feelings of hopelessness or what would you say to them right now and what sort of resources would you recommend for them? So to the parents, to the partners, to the administrators, to the, to the, to the policymakers, screen, 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 ask the question, make it part, make part parental mental health means we're screening both parents Mm. at all the touch points, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, American Academy of Pediatrics, other bodies recommend regular mental health screening, include the non-gestational partners, look at the dads and ask them questions. How are you doing, dad? How are you really doing? Mm. And know how to refer. Like if, if, I mean, you can go online and download the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale and give it to someone. And that tends to freak your average dude or, or dad out yeah. in certain ways. So you don't have to go about it that way. But if they answer anything that sounds like, yeah, I'm kind of off or I'm not sure, like send them to Postpartum Support International. It's at postpartum.net. I've been on the board of PSI. I'm a longtime member. I still host a, a dad's chat for it. Postpartum.net has phenomenal resources, including a 24-7 helpline 
that moms, dads, grandparents, anyone can call in. You can call, you can text, you can do it in Spanish, you can do it in English and say, hey, I need some support. Somebody I know needs some support. And we have resources all over the country. We have people in every state. We have chapters in most states and we're trying to get to all of them. So ask the question, don't shy or don't let the stigma of mental health or whatever association you may have for it, don't don't shut down the conversation and then know how to refer, send them to postpartum.net, pick up the phone, put it on their head if you need to, but that's what I encourage. Yeah, thank you. I will make sure I put that in the show notes as well. Are you personally accepting new clients via telehealth or your practice? Uh, and what's your website if so, so listeners can find out more about your practice? So, yeah, I actually have uh, two other staff psychologists that are phenomenal that work with me here at the Center for Men's Excellence. I'm actually at this point not taking patients, but yeah, anyone who wants to get more information, we got a resources section. There's a contact us section at uh, www.menexcel.com. Love it. And just a final question for you. Uh, what's your favorite part about being a dad? It's another really, really great question. What I, I think what I love most about my dad experience so far is when my kids do something that allows me an, an insight into how creative and funny and thoughtful their inner worlds are. Mm. I think that it's, it's those moments that I'm just like, totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it. That was awesome and phenomenal. And that offsets a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so fun. I can't wait. Mm -hmm. You're like way ahead of me, but I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to me. And um, this was awesome. Anything else that we didn't cover that you want to you want to share? No, not that I can think of. It's, right. I appreciate you having me on. It's, yeah. it's nice. Nice to meet you. And nice to talk with you. You too. Thank you to Dr. Singley so much. And to learn more about him, please check out all the links in the show notes. You know, if you don't know how to find the show notes, which some people don't really know, it's just really easy. You swipe up on the episode as you're listening to it. Just swipe up with your finger and all the notes should be right there. Super easy. If you enjoy this show, the absolute best way to show me some love is to subscribe, rate, and review. I read all your reviews. They really keep me going. Your beautiful reviews are the wind beneath my wings, truly. For a podcast that has zero budget, zero income, like your reviews are my greatest joy. So thank you, thank you, thank you for showing me some love. Share the show with all your friends, family, social media, anyone, you know, your favorite checkout lady at the grocery store, anyone you think it might be helpful to. The more we share our vulnerable truths surrounding birth and parenthood with each other, then the stronger and more empowered our community of families become. I truly believe that. Follow us on Instagram at birth show and go to birthshow.com to see tons of resources that will help you on your own journey into parenthood. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to be with you again soon for the next conversation that we will have all about birth. This is a Sync Studios production.